Welcome to the third in the series on complexity and systemic risk uh, seminar series, which is uh, jointly run by the uh, 21st Century School, in collaboration with the uh, Academy Complexity Center, also the Institute of Science and Innovation Society. I hadn't anticipated, uh, when, when thinking of the type of complexity and systemic risk, I wasn't necessarily thinking of complexity and systemic risk with regard to train travel. Uh, and I'm very happy, nor in talking about anticipating future complexity do I think was Mike thinking of that necessarily. So I'm very pleased um, our speaker is here. I'll keep the introduction very short so we can get straight to the meat of things. Extremely pleased uh, to be welcoming Mike Patty from UCL, where he runs a remarkable interdisciplinary outfit called CASA, the Center for Applied Spatial Analysis. Uh, and before uh, his time at UCL, he spent some time at the State University of New York at Buffalo running an NSF center over there. He is an ideal speaker to be telling us about uh, complexity in cities. Many of you might know a wonderful uh, volume published by MIT Press on complexity in cities, uh, which uh, covers complexities from the point of view of agent-based modeling, from the point of view of fractals, multi-scale behavior. And uh, some of you may also have encountered uh, his piece in Science, and I think it was 2008, on future research trends and thinking about cities and what has been done and what very much has not been done. So he's the perfect person to tell us about today's talk, anticipating future complexity models for understanding and forecasting futures for cities. So right over to you. Thank you. Oh, thanks very much, Felix, and apologies for the late start. Uh, all the trains were uh, down at Paddington when I got there, sort of... Uh, uh, because somebody put themselves on the line near Tapler, near Reading. Anyway, so here I am. Um, in fact, uh, I feel a bit of a fraud, really, because when Felix asked me to give you a title, um, I actually sort of wrote down a title that is a paper I'd like to write um, about anticipating future complexity and really about uh, how cities are becoming more complex in some sense. And that requires, I think, um, uh, a lot of different kind of... Uh, perspectives really on cities in this sense uh, uh, and, and in, in a sense it's a paper yet to be written it sort of would relate to uh, ideas about scaling as cities get bigger things change for example people travel longer in big cities etc there's more diversity and so on anyway I'm not going to talk about that but I'm going to talk very much about cities and about different perspectives on actually modeling them so that we can think about understanding and forecasting futures in cities. I'm actually going to, 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 to really look at one kind of model that we're building for Greater London and look at the implications for it, which are very different, I think, from um, 30 or 40 years ago when these sorts of models were actually uh, developed in the first instance. So what I want to do is I want to tell you a little bit about urban models, different types, styles, many different conceptions of cities that, in fact, over the last... Uh, 30 or 40 years from the very beginnings, almost as soon as uh, uh, computers sort of uh, moved out of the scientific laboratory, people were beginning to play around with uh, thinking about building models of cities, models of traffic, of course, uh, in the United States in the uh, 1950s, uh, but then in the 1960s, land use transport models. And it's those sorts of models, if you like, that I'll be starting with and developing, although, as Felix said, there are lots of other sorts of approaches towards models which have emerged since then. Um, broadly speaking, um, models have become more disaggregate, more detailed, and they've moved away from being static and cross-sectional to dynamic in that sense. Um, 
Uh, and, of course, the challenges that uh, uh, are posed in terms of urban problems have changed quite dramatically. So I'll really be talking about all of this and showing you what we're doing in, uh, in Greater London in terms of building a model. So I'll talk a little bit, having said something about models, I'll say something about key challenges. And then what I want to do is to really talk about the heartland of... Uh, uh, the land use transportation interaction model that we're building for Greater London. This is essentially what I call a symbolic model. And this distinction between symbolic and iconic is uh, uh, well versed in the literature. There's a, a wonderful paper in the 1960s by Ira Lowry who built one of the first land use transport models for Pittsburgh called a short course in model design. Um, and and uh, he talks about this difference between symbolic and um, iconic, and in, in the process of doing that, he talks about analog models, lots of different types of models, but essentially thinking about different kinds of abstractions. Uh, now, when this sort of field that I'll be talking about began, then it was largely to do with <coughs> symbolic models, iconic models. The idea that we could build a geometry of the city was really not on the agenda at all. Um, there were iconic models of cities, geometric models that were built by architects, etc., but they weren't digital in any sense. Um, in the intervening period, what's been happening is that those sorts of models have come on stream. They're, they're highly representational, they visualise city form, uh, they don't really look at the kind of functions of cities in terms of land use transport that I'll be talking about. But interestingly enough, for a whole variety of reasons, quite recently, in the last 10 years, they've begun to merge in some sense. So I'll talk mainly about symbolic, and then I'll give you a sense of a totally different style of, of modelling which is iconic, and then I'll pose the question at the end how we can actually put these things together because they represent different perspectives on the city, uh, obviously two different perspectives. Uh, of course, as we know, there are many different perspectives on the city. There are many different uh, modelling perspectives on the city and if we broaden it to theoretical conceptions about what the city is, there are literally almost as many conceptions uh, of the city as there are people thinking about cities in that sense. That uh, uh, We live in a world which is uh, highly... Uh, uh, with many paradigms and, and many different approaches. Okay, so let me say something about urban models, different types, different styles and different conceptions. Um, I really, all, I, I've said this, which is on the side, I've said there is this strong distinction between iconic models and symbolic models. It was quite interesting that uh, uh, somebody asked me, uh, this was probably about five or six years ago, to... Uh, put together a proposal for a, an EPSRC network on urban models. This was a chap who had built a, a model of um, the city of Bath. Uh, and it was an iconic model, it was a digital model, it was a CAD model, a computer-aided design model. Uh, and he was quite a well-known sort of fellow who had uh, pioneered this kind of modelling. And he said to, he said to us, would, would I like to, to uh, uh, put together this proposal for a network on urban models, right, a seminar series? And I said, yes, I've written a book on urban models, okay, in Cambridge University Press in 1976, which was really all about symbolic models. So we went away and looked at the book, and then we realised, of course, we were talking completely cross-purposes, that what he was talking about was CAD models, architects' models, which had become digital. Uh, what I was thinking about was symbolic models in that sense, and the notion of merging them in some sense was quite problematic at that point, but increasingly uh, we're beginning to see ways in which they can be merged. Okay, um, uh, again, this is, I, I've really said what's on this slide, that, uh, that, that in some senses uh, this field of uh, modelling cities really began with symbolic models using the numerical uh, power of early computers, etc. And it's gradually become physical, as I've said, in the sense that uh, 
the representation of the GIS and the CAD and so on uh, has come on stream to actually give them some sort of visual form in that sense. But there's a massive mix of styles in this sense. And if you unpack uh, the models themselves, then they range all the way from urban economic theory. Uh, there are lots of people who've thought about modelling cities using simple principles of microeconomics, etc., uh, highly abstract in that sense, all the way to empirical functionalism, uh, statistical uh, uh, and uh, data-based uh, uh, thinking of, of the most empirical and pragmatic kind. Uh, and there are obviously conceptual differences uh, in terms of cities, in terms of what uh, should and actually can be modelled or simulated. And there are many conceptual models, I think, that don't make any attempt at empirical verification whatsoever. Uh, we have different views about this, but the style of model I'll be talking about is in some senses classically scientific, in the sense that uh, the land use transport models I'll be talking about start with observing data, they uh, have various hypotheses about how the city works, they tune the models, they calibrate them in this sense to see how, if they perform well, in some sense, and then um, if they do perform well, and of course in many of these modelling ventures, the, the sheer effort to actually bring them to the point where we can see how they perform uh, has its own inertia, and even if the models aren't very good, people still continue to actually use them for forecasting. Uh, but the theory of it is that if the model works reasonably well, uh, and that in itself is quite, uh, quite an issue, uh, then it can be used for sort of forecasting. If the, if the model is used well, if the model performs well in some sense, uh, that in itself is a major issue, that strictly speaking, if we build a model of London and it works reasonably well for London, we should probably take it to Oxford and see whether it works for Oxford in that sense. We should, we should try it in, in a different time and a different place before we can think, and of course that very rarely happens in our field. The same is true, I think, of, uh, of many economic models, uh, econometric modelling in that sense. So to some extent in this, in this field, the kind of classic scientific process, as it were, of starting with observations, uh, testing out hypotheses, building models and seeing whether the, uh, the model performs well is, is somewhat different, I think, from kind of classical science. Okay, now there are at least three classes of, uh, of symbolic urban model, which are generic types. Um, as I said, you can see in terms of this slide that there are, there are three types, aggregative, disaggregate, and individual models in that sense, which to some extent relates to the chronology of how these models have, be, uh, have been developed. I'll be talking, interestingly, about the first class of model, uh, which in some sense is the oldest, but each of these other classes of model, in a sense, take a slightly different perspective um, on the city system. The aggregative land use transport models essentially uh, begin with ideas from urban economic theory about how the, uh, the world is structured in terms of how the different parts of a city fit together, uh, in terms of what depends on what, uh, the kind of a glue that holds the urban activities together in this sense um, uh, really relates to flows and links and linkages in that sense. Uh, in terms of the, the heritage of these things, they rely, as I said, on urban economic theory, uh, location theory, uh, transportation, uh, modelling and planning, uh, things of that sort. And they tend to be aggregative in the sense that they deal with activities which relate to large areas which are referred to 
um, as zones in the sense that they may, the zones themselves where you divide the city up might be census tracts, for example. Um, they tend not to think of the city in terms of the kind of buildings and the layout at that particular level. They, they also tend to be static in the sense that they treat the city as if it's in equilibrium at a cross-section in time uh, for a whole range of reasons that when these models began, uh, dynamic data about how cities changed was... Um, very rarely available in some sense, although people working in these models did uh, realise that, uh, uh, that this was a major issue in terms of thinking of the city in equilibrium uh, in that context. But um, again, various trade-offs were made in terms of building these models. Um, the disaggregative dynamic generative models sort of came a little bit later. I mean, people working with these sorts of models felt that um, uh, one needed to disaggregate, in other words, to break down the activities into different types, uh, even break down the zones into smaller uh, kind of spatial units in a sense, uh, and also at the same time to introduce some sort of notion of dynamics. Uh, and in some senses too, to think about how those dynamics actually played out in time. Uh, and it's no accident that disaggregate dynamic generative models of a physical type, uh, which are based on how the city actually grows really from the bottom up, uh, and how the city actually forms in that sense. Good examples of that are cellular automata. Now, it's no accident that that style of model is much more geared to the complexity science, as it were, that think of the world really as, uh, as the emergence of uh, a pattern really from the bottom up in some sense. That's a rather extreme view in, in, in many senses, but it's a characteristic, if you like, of complexity science. And then, of course, individual-based models, agent-based models have become all the rage recently, where the disaggregation is taken down even further so that we're modelling individuals. Uh, there is, for example, a model, um, a transportation model called Transims, which was developed... Uh, at the end of the Cold War at Los Alamos, uh, apparently the senator for New Mexico sort of uh, realised that they had a big facility there uh, and a lot of unemployed nuclear physicists, etc., um, in the, 1990, the early 1990s. Uh, and uh, uh, using uh, the various mechanisms that senators normally do in the United States, he convinced the uh, federal highways to invest a large amount of money uh, in, a, in an individual agent-based model where every car was actually modelled on the highway in this particular context. That's a classic example of an agent-based model. Needless to say, um, uh, a, a lot of very interesting science, but of course at the end of the day the models didn't work really as well as the aggregative or disaggregative models in this particular context. These models all work to a degree in different ways, and they're very difficult to compare in some senses. Again, okay, I'm not going to be talking about these latter two sets of models. I'm really going to be talking about... Uh, talking about the aggregative uh, static land use transport, what I call LUTI in this context. Okay, key challenges. I'm not going to say much about this, but obviously during the time when these models have been developed, uh, the context has changed quite dramatically uh, in the sense that they were developed in the 1950s, 60s and 70s when urban growth and transportation particularly uh, was a strong focus in some senses, that uh, no accident that... Transport modelling began in the 50s and uh, uh, about the time when um, 
the interstate highway system was being developed, as it were, in the 1950s, uh, and when uh, car ownership had reached a level in, uh, in the United States where it was causing very severe uh, problems uh, in, uh, in large cities. Uh, so in some sense, all of that context has changed, and the issues at the present time, I think, were these models are being thought about. And my context, uh, the context of modelling I'll talk about uh, is related to this. Uh, these are issues of things that uh, we're all familiar with, such as climate change and energy change in this particular context, and also uh, demographic change in terms of ageing, in a sense, and uh, environmental degradation and regeneration. These are also really buzzwords about the key challenges. But in fact, the example I'm going to be talking about is uh, of using a model in a process which is really looking at climate change in London. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Uh, but there's generally wide recognition that all of these issues cannot be captured in one model. That's a sort of fairly obvious point, I think, in a sense. Um, but we're only really in a position now where we're beginning to think about linking models together in this particular context and looking at the city in different ways by looking at it through uh, the lens of different model types. Okay, now I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time talking about the land use transportation model for Greater London in this sense. Um, and what we're concerned about in this project is really looking at long-term predictions. We're looking actually at climate change out to 50 or 100 years from now. We're also looking at demographic ageing, uh, transitions in energy use uh, with respect to, um, uh, for example, uh, changes in behaviour that might relate to uh, how we move around the city in the future, given uh, different uh, cost constraints on energy, uh, and indeed, of course, related to that transport technology. So we have a long time horizon. Now, this is another issue which I think is very important in terms of thinking about the city and thinking about modelling. We're actually going to build, uh, as part of this, a cross-sectional static model uh, that really assumes that the city adjusts, as it were, over a long period of time to the new equilibrium in that sense. In fact, it's probably true to say that the longer the time horizon, the, f the further out you look in some sense, then of course the more problematic in terms of uh, what the model is, is predicting in some sense, but the longer you look in, in a sense, perhaps then the simpler the model. Um, it's well recognised that, we, uh, that, that uh, in, in thinking about 50 or 100 years' time, then there are some quite dramatic... Uh, issues that one has to resolve in terms of the appropriate, appropriateness or otherwise of the model in that sense. Um, and uh, again, it's a cliche, but these models are very much used in a kind of what-if kind of context to actually inform the debate about the long-term future. The reason, of course, in this context is why we're talking about 50 or 100 years out. Uh, it's largely because the climate change predictions that are available for um, uh, 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 which, which are not well established but, uh, but certainly well known in this sense uh, really relate to that kind of time period in a sense. So if we really want to look at uh, the future for example of Greater London uh, in terms of what climate scientists are saying about uh, what's going to happen in 50 to 100 years then we really have to broach this nettle, this grasp this nettle um, about this sort of long term forecasting issue. Okay, 50 to 100 years, in our context, uh, in Greater London, then um, 
in a sense, uh, we're talking about rising sea level. We're also talking about the heat island effect in that context. And as you'll see in a moment, this model fits within a whole series of models uh, that relate to that. Um, this question of uh, whether or not the, we, should, we should adopt an equilibrium model in some sense is, is a kind of contestable, debatable issue in this, in this context. But the, the sort of models that we've got tend to be uh, sufficiently intelligible, in a sense, uh, to be able to make, sense of, um, uh, to make sense of the future in this way. In other words, the kind of equilibrium assumptions in that sense are a bit more kind of credible uh, than if one was uh, thinking about much more short-term <coughs> forecasting. Now, the other feature of this is that uh, because our project is embedded, if you like, in a wider context of which there are a whole variety of stakeholders, for example, uh, ranging from transport to London and the GLA and so on, uh, in this particular context, then we have to make it intelligible in a visual sense. Now, that accords to much of what we're actually doing in terms of, um, uh, in terms of actually building the model and making it operational. Uh, I'll be talking about the one model, but it sits within a process of integrated assessment, as I'll show you in a moment. Okay, now, this is really part of the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change. If you actually look at phase two of the Tyndall Centre, uh, which is the big consortium which is... Uh, centred on East Anglia, where all the, uh, all the politics are at the moment in this sense. Uh, but anyway, phase, we're on the very edge of that. Phase two um, really had a, one of the questions was cities in this sense. Uh, and we're part of a consortium that's headed up by um, one of the deputy directors of Tyndall, uh, Jim Hall at Newcastle, who's a civil engineer, a flooding expert. Um, and he put together a proposal to look at Greater London as the kind of uh, the example city in this context, uh, in the context of 50 to 100 year climate change predictions, which largely relate to flooding in this particular context. Also, um, air pollution, urban form, the heat island effect, all funded through um, other projects in EPSRC, were part and parcel of this. So London was a good context in which to think about these issues. Um, it, the, uh, I'll just show you a couple of slides about the key issues in London. This is the, the top uh, diagram is... Uh, uh, a picture of flooding, I think, in the, in the 18th century, the floodplain, and then the bottom one is from the Environment Agency. The floodplain. It's quite severe, as I'll actually show you in some context, that if, for example, we did have one, two, three metres uh, rise in uh, uh, sea level that uh, flooded in through the Thames Estuary in this sense, then there would be quite severe problems in London. Um, the South Bank would flood uh, uh, very easily, very quickly, as I'll show you later. And, of course... Um, Although we didn't think much about climate change in those days, the, the flood events in 1953 led to the construction of the, uh, the Thames Barrage that is raised ever frequently, as it were, uh, or put down ever frequently uh, in, t uh, uh, in terms of flood events. Okay, so um, this is really part of this problem of the, the Tyndall Centre, uh, and this is, a, this is a brochure that you can download from... Uh, <coughs> Uh, the Tyndall site, etc., called Engineering Cities, which is really about this particular context. Now, we're actually building a model for Greater London and the Thames Gateway. There's some pictures here of what Greater London is to fix ideas. Um, uh, we're here in Oxford, which is uh, quite close to London in some senses. Uh, but we're talking about the GLA area for lots of, lots of reasons to do with the making this stuff operational in terms of data, etc., we began with the GLA, GLA area, we've extended out into what's called the Thames Gateway, as it were, obviously into the estuary in this context, although the Thames Gateway uh, is uh, 
also regarded by the GLA as anything really from Docklands sort of east in this particular context. Um, what we're talking about in terms of scale is about 7.7 .7 million people in uh, Greater London, and uh, there are 33 boroughs in that sense, all well known, the city uh, in the centre, and then Westminster, Camden, and so on. Uh, and essentially, uh, what we're going to be building is a land use transportation model, one part of the process of integrated assessment, which is based on um, the, the, the unit or the zone, as it were, in which we look at activity, um, is effectively the ward. Okay, so in that context, there are 633 wards in London. You can roughly work out the, 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 the average population in each of the ward from, from this particular context, about uh, uh, 10,000 or so. Um, in that particular context, then, Clearly, we have quite a fine spatial resolution in this particular context. And I should say that we built this model, um, two or three versions already, and we're just about to actually move it to a situation where we're actually beginning to look at the a much wider region in the whole of the southeast. One of the major problems of modelling anything, is that, uh, which is a system in some sense, uh, or integrated system is actually drawing the boundary in that sense. And it, this is a fairly obvious issue about where does one draw the boundary. In fact, ironically, that one of the big employment hubs in Greater London, as I'll show you in a moment, but there are probably about four or five big employment hubs, Docklands, uh, Westminster City, um, and uh, the, uh, the West End, uh, Heathrow, uh, Wembley, and uh, Croydon in this sense. But Heathrow is right on the edge as it were, at this particular point here. This is a massive employment hub. There's 100,000 people actually working Heathrow. If you ever take the tube, as I do, sort of early morning down to the airport, then it's absolutely packed out at 6.30. As soon as the tube's open, they're actually packed out that Piccadilly line going down to Heathrow. There's a massive number of workers who work there. OK. Um, now, the land use transport model I'm going to be talking about sits within this process of integrated assessment. Uh, and... Um, I'm not sure I made the point, but, but clearly, yes, I think I did make the point, that uh, clearly in this particular context that there are lots of different models that really have to fit together in the integrated assessment, uh, which really enable us to actually look at, uh, in some sense, what areas will flood over the next 50 to 100 years. So in our context, we're talking about the land use transport model, which is the centre here, but it sits within a broader process that starts at the regional level and factors really down to uh, the very local site level. So um, this is what we're talking about, the land use transport model, but uh, sitting, uh, it sits within a process that begins with um, a regional input-output model. The regional input-output model is developed by Cambridge Econometrics or the Department of Land Economy at Cambridge, Terry Barker's group, who have lots of different input-output models uh, around the world and Europe, etc. But the version they're using, uh, which drives really employment estimates for the next 50 to 100 years, I mean, how can we estimate employment for 50 to 100 years? But nevertheless, the scenarios that are actually... Uh, constructed, as it were, for, for, for employment estimates, are based on, on this UK input-output model, of which the Greater London region is one zone in this particular context. Uh, the employment projections, uh, and the, we don't have a demographic model in this particular context as yet, but in a new project we are going to build a demographic model. We're going to use a, a micro-simulation model that's developed at Leeds, but... Uh, but uh, the, uh, the employment uh, projections are then factored down to 
small areas in, in a context, and that's where we get going in the land use transport model. The land use transport model essentially takes employment estimates, as it were, for the future, uh, and it works out, or it simulates really, uh, where the likely locations are for, uh, for where that employment will live. So essentially it's a kind of a housing market, residential location model, there are other bits to it which I'll show you in a moment. Uh, once we make predictions for the future with respect to where population is likely to be, uh, then there's a more detailed uh, site-specific model which it takes it down to something like a 50-meter uh, uh, grid, as it were, in this particular context. Now, that's the point at which the flood models uh, begin to operate in the sense that uh, once one gets down to a kind of 50-meter resolution, you begin to say sensible things uh, with respect to... Um, uh, what, the model, what the flood models might actually uh, say about uh, whether or not those areas will flood. Uh, this is all set within this global climate context. There are some, some emissions modelling, and let me just say we have Cambridge doing the input-output model ourselves at UCL doing the land use transport model. Uh, the site model, the population site model, the GIS model, is done by Newcastle Civil Engineering. So it's a sort of GIS model. Uh, Newcastle Civil Engineering also do the transport bit, uh, and you can imagine the kind of nightmare of stitching all this stuff together. Um, the expertise, obviously, is fairly clear that uh, we all don't have uh, uh, each other's expertise in this sense, that we're all kind of fairly specialised in a sense, so stitching it together in this way is quite important. Uh, but actually operating it as a consortium is a complete nightmare, I and mean, it operates by email, all of this stuff, with flat files being sort of shifted... <coughs> A clarification question. The IU model, what are the units, the rows and columns? Are they oh, yes. regions or sectors? They're sectors. Sectors. Yeah, they're sectors. You mentioned that, that it sits within a spatial context, of which Greater London and uh, I think East Anglia and maybe the rest of the South East are three separate zones. So you've got these bigger regional units and within yes, those yes, they've got yes, sectors. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and I, I, I think, but I'm not sure, that that, pr that model probably sits within a, uh, a bigger context in terms of the way the uh, Cambridge group are actually doing it. Okay, um, the land use transport model is really in two layers. That We have a, an activity layer and we have a physical layer. That, uh, the activity layer, you can see, is population and employment. And traditionally, the uh, way in which um, uh, population and employment relate to each other, the Population depends on employment and vice versa, but there are exogenous things that we can't predict or we need to accept, uh, which actually drive that process. So that's a kind of fairly well mapped out structure for these sorts of land use transport models. There's a kind of physical dimension where the activity gets translated to land use, how much land is used uh, and how much, uh, uh, how much uh, capacity there is on, on transport networks and so on. Uh, and so you can see that in some senses, um, that even though we're talking about an activity model uh, at the aggregate level, then at the, at the slightly more disaggregate level, the physical level, then we're talking actually about physical land use. In fact, we don't, it doesn't really get particularly uh, physical in the sense of uh, looking like land use until it actually gets down to the population site model, uh, which, which is in the integrated assessment. So you can just about make out, I've just uh, coloured that, uh, those grey bits basically just grade it out a bit which actually shows you uh, the initial model that we began with and now we're expanding to this particular context 
Okay, now a number of things about the model. It's, it's quite simple, uh, the land use transfer model. It's highly visual so that uh, we can see uh, what actually happens all the time. I mean, one of the great things about uh, computation in this world is, uh, in this area, is that uh, everything has become visual in the last 10 or 15 years. So consequently, everything we do with respect to data can be uh, made visual. In fact, we need visualization extensively to make sure that the data is right. Uh, for two years, we ran the model and found that 60 of the wards were actually south of the river. When we found out that Swiss Cottage was south of the river, yeah. that uh, uh, we, we really so you know this is this is a kind of a, this is a kind of important issue, it's particularly if you have a consortium of people shipping you data uh, from different places, all working to slightly different standards. Um, okay, so it's a highly visual model. It's, it's got a lot of mapping in it, which is not GIS per se, but it's, it's basically mapping so that it, it's, it's immediate and accessible. Um, it's quite different from some of the large-scale land-use transport models like Urban Sim. I'm not going to go into this, but many of the land-use transportation models are very extensive uh, and don't operate in the same kind of context as this. They're less visual um, and uh, they're perhaps more disaggregate than uh, what we've got. Um, and as I said, essentially we begin with a residential model, but we're extending it out to other sectors. Okay, now the model is also structured so that it, it really relates to four different modes of travel. This is particularly important in terms of sort of the current uses that we're looking at, uh, in terms of what might happen to energy related to travel uh, in, the next, um, in the next 10 or 15 or 20 years in that context. Uh, which is another application that I'll come on to in a moment. But essentially the model is, the, 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 the flows between origins and destinations between employment and residential locations are broken down into four different modes. This is a fairly, uh, a fairly classic distinction that you see in transportation modelling. The four modes in fact are uh, car as you'd expect, um, or uh, road, uh, road we call it in this context, uh, light rail and tube which is mainly tube plus Docklands Light Railway, and um, uh, heavy rail, which is overground rail, uh, and of course bus. Uh, and then there is a kind of residual mode, which is walking, biking, flying, whatever it is in this particular context. <coughs> the, the, the movement which is not captured uh, by those four modes, which is actually treated as a residual, which is quite a problem in some sense, that we really need to, to unpack that a bit more, particularly if people um, are beginning to shift from... Uh, say car or bus etc to walking and, uh, and to biking as indeed is happening uh, fairly extensively in central London at the present time. Okay, now here's the algebraic formulation. I'm not going to bore you with this because lots of people here will... Uh, it's, it's simply to give, me, to give me an idea of what to say in relation to the model. The model actually predicts flows between origins and destinations which go I and J. Um, this is the kind of classic formulation that says that it's really essentially a social physics model, it's a gravity model. Um, essentially, if we have these flows between employment and population centres, origins and destinations, they're moderated by transport costs, that's the C there, um, and effectively, if we know where people work, what the model does enables us to actually predict not only the flow uh, to where they might live, uh, but also the total amount of people actually destined for particular locations. So if we change the elements on the right-hand side of that equation, if we change travel costs, for example, if we change it relative to the mode of travel in this context, then we'll see quite substantial shifts 
not only in how people travel, but also in potentially in where they might actually live in this context. Uh, and these are the sort of constraints, in a sense. Um, anybody who knows a bit about social physics will recognize this as a spatial interaction model. Uh, it's essentially a statistical <coughs> physics type model in some senses. The equations look like uh, what you might find in statistical mechanics in that particular context. Okay, that's the framework in which one can actually produce quite consistent modeling of this kind. Okay, now I think I've said most of this, that the, the modes are road, bus, heavy rail and light rail. Uh, we've not got any disaggregation yet, although this is on the cards for the next stage. Uh, disaggregation of the population and employment groups into five different types. So it's aggregate population and employment at the present time in terms of what we've been doing with Tyndall. Um, if we do, uh, as we will, disaggregate into five employment and five population types, uh, uh, which will capture a lot more behaviour in, in a sense, uh, then clearly the model, in fact, increases in terms of its uh, running time, etc., by 25, in a sense. We're changing one employment and one population to five of each, in that sense. So we've got potentially um, 25 different models running in that sense. <coughs> the model's calibrated to make sure uh, that the mean trip costs, the mean amount of travel in the system, is... Uh, uh, is, is preserved or conserved in that sense. That's a kind of basic accounting requirement for these models. Uh, and it's visually driven, uh, and it's, uh, it's visually driven on the desktop, and we can actually set up uh, simple scenarios to do it. Now, I'm not sure whether I'll actually run the model, but I'm actually going to show you some, uh, uh, some screenshots from the model itself. So that's the kind of splash screen uh, that gets us going. Uh, and uh, across the top here, I'll just point these out, we have a kind of a toolbar that tells us that this is really the model building process where we begin by exploring the data and then we calibrate the model. Then we're able to explore the calibration. So in some senses, this is a, a balanced process of data, calibration, meaning getting the model to perform as best it can, and then prediction. And at each stage, we're able to explore the data uh, using the same set of functions, which are maps, histograms, and things of that sort. This screen, in fact, uh, is really just the initial screen that enables you to uh, read in the data in that sense. I've actually pointed out the little, uh, uh, the little red blob there is a uh, little red uh, uh, circle is um, Heathrow, because that's a good fix, as it were, in terms of uh, things in this model. We'll use that as a fix to, to sort of look at things. Uh, and in this particular context, you can actually look at the data. There's a lot of data to look at, uh, in some sense, but you've got some sense of the, uh, of, of the actual quantities involved. If you click on Heathrow, as I've done there, read employment data, Heathrow, you can see there are uh, in 2003, I think, which is the year at which we built the model for, not 2001, uh, we've got 86,900 jobs or so in Heathrow. So that's the kind of thing you can do. Um, okay, uh, there's Heathrow again, and uh, uh, these, are the, these, are the, these are the different modes of travel and the, the amount of travel costs in this particular context. Okay, so you can actually see, too, at the bottom, this is quite important, that in Greater London... 38% of people travel by car, 12% by bus, 12% by heavy rail, 90% uh, by light rail, that means tube really in that sense. The other 19% are probably walking or biking in that sense. The reason why I sort of put fly in that is that from the uh, data that uh, uh, we're given in this sense, then um, this is a residual mode. People can travel in, in any way other than those four. 
Um, and uh, believe it or not, from the journey work statistics, there may well be people uh, who do actually fly to work in London from uh, Glasgow or Edinburgh or whatever. Anyway, very small number. But um, Okay, so that's quite interesting because London is a relatively uh, car-free city in some senses. Of course, once we get into the centre, uh, then at any point in time in, in the CBD, then uh, about 40% of people are actually walking of those making trips. Uh, and about 90% of the people travelling into central London to work actually travel by uh, public transport of some form, in a sense, but certainly not by car. In fact, although the congestion charge has reduced um, uh, traffic a little bit, or it's crept back, as it were, uh, the number of cars, passenger cars, coming to central London has continued to drop, I think, in that context, that the, uh, the, congestion, the, the congestion, the amount of vehicles has come back up from when the congestion charge was, 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 was instituted, uh, but it's mainly accounted for by delivery vehicles and taxis and buses and so on. Okay, now, now all I'm going to do is I'm going to race through this uh, fairly quickly, and then maybe... Uh, Maybe I will run the model to show you uh, sort of what, what's going on in some sense. I'd only take a kind of minute or so. Uh, it's a bit of an indulgence, I think, but uh, I should only take a minute to actually uh, load it up. But this, is, this, essentially, is just, uh, this essentially is just looking at um, uh, employment, in a sense. It's actually looking at accessibility. Uh, to give you an idea of what's going on in the model, the accessibility, this is accessibility by road. Accessibility means the relative nearness of any place to all of the places in that sense. Um, it's computed from uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the trip distributions, etc., which are fed into the model. What you can see there is that the, uh, the inaccessible bit, the blue is relatively inaccessible, uh, and the inaccessible bit is actually the congestion charge zone in this particular context. To actually cross into that zone, uh, then you're going to be paying £8 a day unless you're a resident where you get 90% discount. But, so in this particular context, that, uh, that's, that's in terms of road, it's made central London relatively inaccessible to car travellers, travellers to, to work in this particular context from employment to population in that sense. So again, it's quite a faithful representation of what's going on in London at the present time. Okay, so there's, there's a great deal in the model that enables you to um, explore data, to calibrate it, uh, to calibrate it meaning we fine-tune it, we actually tune it so that it reproduces the, ex the existing situation in the best possible way. There are many options to change the structure of the model very slightly. Uh, at this particular point to use different variables and so on. So that's all subsumed really within this process. Uh, and uh, uh, once one, one gets to the point where you consider the model is worthy of uh, being used for forecasting in some senses, uh, then we can actually begin to do that on the fly. So here, for example, um, is a picture of employment uh, in central London. Again, this reinforces what I said earlier, that uh, in Greater London, I should say, uh, you can actually see... Um, you're probably not that familiar with the geometry of, of London in that context, but uh, the big bars there tend to be Westminster and the West End, and uh, the city, uh, you can just about know one of those uh, bars in the centre is the city, uh, which is a little bit less employment, in fact, than, uh, than Victoria and, and the West End in that context. Uh, you can see out towards the northwest Wembley, and then you can see Heathrow, and down at the bottom you can see Croydon, and you can just about make out Docklands uh, with the, the kind of uh, loop in the Thames in that particular context. 
Uh, some of these areas, of course, are growing quite substantially. There's more in Heathrow and more in Docklands in terms of employment than there was uh, when this data was actually put together. We're talking about this data set is not far short of about 10 years old in that particular context. Okay, what we can actually do there is that uh, you can see that uh, on the fly, the user uh, can actually generate a scenario. So we can actually say, um, we can change the amount of employment in Heathrow, click on Heathrow with the mouse, uh, and increase the, the, the amount of employment in this particular context. So any of the kind of inputs to the model can be changed. The user can build a scenario as it were, on the fly. Now, that's particularly useful. I mean, uh, in some senses, it's almost essential if one is thinking about engaging the, in, in using these as, as, as uh, uh, ways of actually informing the process of thinking about the future, uh, of actually sort of uh, giving the user, and I, by the user here, I mean the sort of model user, as it were, uh, the power to actually demonstrate these things on the fly in that context, that we have a stakeholder group in the Tyndall project which uh, consists of um, relatively informed experts, in a sense, from the different agencies, etc. Uh, but this process works well in terms of uh, thinking about possibilities, thinking about scenarios, etc., uh, in some senses. So to some extent, this is sort of making the point that these sorts of models um, are used, as it were, to inform what is essentially a debating process about thinking about climate change in the future. Okay, the other thing we can do is introduce new transport routes. Again, this is very schematic, but I can point to Heathrow and somewhere in central London and actually change the cost of travel on a particular mode. So, for example, I could introduce my own crossrail in this particular context, uh, and then that would begin to uh, show us what might happen when we run the model uh, to show us the predictions of, uh, of uh, the predictions that uh, uh, would would occur with respect to the redistribution of the population. Okay, now should I run the model? Yes, let me. I'll, I'll run the model at this point because it's uh, uh, it's quite. Uh, um, I'll take my glasses off. Uh, it's quite an interesting sort of thing to do. Okay, let's have a quick. Okay, I'm gonna run. Okay, so you're going to actually see what you've actually seen on the screen. So I'm going to actually load it in this sense, so let me get rid of some of this stuff. Um, okay, I'm going to read the input. We're going to read the input data, and this is the slow bit, right? I'll have to talk over it while we're doing it. But, uh, Can I ask uh, a question more slowly? Sorry? Can I ask a question more slowly? Yes, yes, please. Say that again. Change the. I still haven't understood what the model actually does. Okay. What do you optimize for? No, the model. The model doesn't. The model actually predicts where 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 employment uh, is resident in that sense. So it's really a, a what we call a residential location model, which takes employment and actually predicts um, where that employment might live in that context. So if you alter employment. Uh, if you alter the amount of employment in different places, you get different amounts living in different... But if you alter the actual costs of actually travel, in some sense, then employment will shift. It's not optimising anything per se, in the sense that if you assume that the world is already optimised, then I guess it's optimising, but it's really mirroring uh, existing behaviour at this point. It's assuming that people will travel in the future like they travel at the, at the present time. Uh, but, of course... Um, 
uh, within the context of different shifts between modes. If I were to reduce the cost of travel on the tube dramatically in this context, we'd see a shift. In fact, that's one of the things I'm actually going to show you. But it's not optimising in any sense. Only insofar as the, uh, uh, the notion of um, the, the interactions in this might be the result of some probability process that could be thought of as utility maximization or entropy maximization or something. But it's not optimizing in the sense I'm not putting an objective function on and saying that, uh, uh, that, that people need to, need, 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 need to actually meet it. When I said that the model produces the mean amount of travel, that's really sort of making sure that the average amount of travel produced by the model is the same as what we observe. That's all. It's kind of fine-tuning thing. Okay, so here's our... Um, here's our... Uh, uh, our interface in this particular context. Now, let me just actually show you uh, in terms of exploring the data. That's quite interesting. So, explore the data. So, I can actually choose a mode. So, if I choose road, for example, uh, and the interzonal trip, then um, I can actually point the mouse across here and, and, and look at the different trips. Here's Heathrow, for example, with respect to uh, where people travel. These are desire lines. We can do the same for population and employment. Um, we can actually look at different maps, so I can look at the population area map in this context or population density, which is different from area, you can see normalised by area. Um, we can actually also, uh, one of the nice things about this is that we can actually export this data on the fly to other kinds of software. That Most of this functionality is actually written within the programme. It's not GIS as such, it's obviously plotting maps, etc., uh, so in that sense, it's, uh, you could think of it as GIS, but uh, um, if we want to actually add it to other data, uh, then recently, within the last two or three months, we've actually been able to export the data to um, Google Earth, for example. So I've just exported that file to Google Earth uh, and clicked on it. It's converted the thing into that. And we can actually then see it uh, in this context, um, basically. Okay, it's not connected to the net in this particular context. So here's Google Earth. This is not connected to the internet in any sense. Um, uh, whoops. Let me go out again. Let me pull it out. There we go. Okay, so that's the map we've just seen generated in the program uh, in this context. Now, of course, um, there's lots of interesting things we can actually do in this context. I could put the tube lines on, for example. Uh, they're actually in red, so it's not so easy, but uh, okay, let me just click, uh, click off that and then uh, put the tube lines on. So to some extent, we can add additional data. What I'll show you a little bit later is that we can, actually, uh, we can actually add some of the physical data. I talked about iconic models. That if you've ever looked at Google Earth, you've probably seen these 3D cities, and we have a 3D city model that sits on top of it. So the notion of putting together symbolic and iconic um, at least at the level of being able to do it right in some senses because of course this is rather an abstract model in some senses uh, that really does not relate to the underlying topography in any formal sense uh, but it's, we're able to put these things together in that sense using this kind of interface um, okay let me um, let me discard that we could move all the way through this process uh, choosing a model etc uh, which is simply um, weighting these things in some sense now I wouldn't expect you to understand in any detail what I was doing there, but basically choosing some different variables or weighting them differently within the model, moving through the process and actually moving to the point where we can actually 
begin to change things on the fly and build up our set of scenarios. Okay, let me uh, leave the program and um, uh, let me leave leave the, leave the program and go back to the PowerPoint if I can find it. Okay, and begin to tell you what else we're doing with the model. Okay, if you want to actually see the model running, there's a little movie on our website. Uh, I'll give Felix the PowerPoint or uh, put it on the net. Um, actually, it is, it, it, I think this PowerPoint probably a version of it is on the net. But uh, if you go to our website and just look at uh, transport model, uh, then you can actually see a little movie of the thing, thing running. Okay, now we're doing a number of things with the model. The, we're, we're introducing a much more explicit economic energy focus to it. We're replacing our simple travel cost function with one that relates to wages, travel cost and housing cost. In particular, we're very interested, for example, uh, in house prices, etc., uh, and wages in the context of London. Uh, and what we're interested in is actually building, as it were, we're actually replacing the behavioural component of the distribution functions with something that relates to how much uh, money people have. So it's giving it a slightly more um, economic focus. The other issue is, of course, if we can think about what people have in terms of wages and how they balance that against housing prices, housing costs, and transport costs in that sense, uh, then we have a lever to begin to think about what happens if we change travel costs relative to wages and housing costs in that context. So to introduce a more explicit energy cost focus to this, we really need to move the model uh, to think about uh, a stronger econ economic, economic basis. Now, uh, to cut a long story short, essentially what we do is re we, replace the, uh, we replace the travel cost functions with functions that relate on the one hand to wages and travel costs, and the other hand to wages and house prices in that context. So these are two components of the sort of household budget that are, are, are really quite critical in this particular context. Now, I don't really have time to tell you in detail um, what this is all about, but let me just race through it quickly. Um, it's very clear that there are quite dramatic differences uh, with different groups. For example, this is taken from the spending survey, uh, and you can see that this is income per week. This is the 09 spending survey, and the total spend, and um, uh, as you might expect, as uh, your income goes up, then you spend more on transport and you spend more on housing in absolute terms. That's the, the, the left-hand graph. But the right-hand graph is in, in relative terms that, uh, interestingly enough, as income goes up, you spend, you continue to spend more on transport, a slightly lesser rate than the absolute, um, and you uh, spend less on housing, including energy in this particular context. And that's important because what we want to do in the model is to unpack housing in terms of housing cost and unpack it in terms of energy. And interestingly enough, a lot of data is now coming on stream, uh, which enables us to actually do something about this. I mean, really, prior to uh, really quite recently, within the last year or so, then getting uh, good data on how much people actually spend in terms of uh, their energy costs, in terms of uh, where they're located housing-wise, uh, simply wasn't available, but it's quite remarkable uh, the new sources of data that are becoming available. House prices, for example, um, well, you can actually scrape the land registry site, as it were. Yeah, okay. And uh, scrape the land registry site and, um, uh, 
and actually produce house prices that way. But uh, many of the big uh, geodemographic vendors like uh, experience on have this. Okay, here's the model. Um, I've added all these bits, etc. Uh, and one of the interesting things is that um, uh, we do have data on uh, uh, we do have data on house prices. This is the house price map of London. As you can see, that uh, the real house prices are down towards the uh, the centre and uh, west of the centre in this particular context. But what we can also do in the model is because we know where people live and work, uh, in a sense, we can sort of work backwards and actually produce a wages map in terms of London. So in terms of the uh, way we're thinking about how things are structured in terms of where people live and work, we can actually take this house price map and work it backwards relative to work, knowing where people live and work in that sense. And this is a particularly interesting map uh, in the sense that it shows that the dominant, uh, the dominant focus of uh, where people have the highest wages is fairly coincident with where people actually live and have the highest prices in this particular context. That's probably, uh, to some extent, an artifact. We're talking about most of the work being here anyway, within the centre, etc. One of the very interesting features of this is the relatively low-wage economy that is uh, structured in West London around the airport in this particular context. And that was really quite a kind of fascinating insight in terms of massaging this data. Okay, now lots of things we can do. I've shown you what we can do in terms of visualisation. I've shown you what we can do in terms of, uh, of Google Earth, etc. Uh, in this particular context. Here's another picture uh, that I'm not able to show you in Google Earth because we really don't have time. But we can export uh, this kind of density map and you can see it in Google Earth. We can export the... Um, uh, the, the, the bars, as it were, we can plot these things as bar graphs, and we can al also ex export the movement. This, in fact, is employment count in, uh, this is in Heathrow, uh, and there you see the centre, uh, uh, Westminster and the city, etc., uh, and then other employment blocks, and then this is a map of population density, etc., uh, in that context, and uh, you see the flows uh, on one of the modes from Heathrow. So the vast amount of information that one has to begin to somehow make sense of and handle, uh, which actually informs you about how the sort of city is working in that sense. And these sorts of technologies give us that possibility. Uh, okay, um, and at the same time, if we're able to actually export all of this into uh, a non-proprietary software system like Google Earth, we can actually capture the data. It's a nice kind of database, so you can see these KML files, which are Google Earth files, they're exported out of the program, uh, and you see that we have a kind of a little database being built up as the program actually actually, actually works. So um, bits of what you've seen uh, really relate to that. Okay, um, now I've said really nothing, well I'm just going to go very quickly and say that the population site model which is developed by uh, uh, by the, the Newcastle people, uh, this, is really this is really downstream from the model I've just been talking about, but once we actually produce, as it were, um, uh, employment for a population forecast for each of these small zones, etc., and we're interested, of course, in, uh, uh, in the zones that are most uh, uh, liable to flooding in this particular context, then that's actually factored down to a much more detailed level. This is a really different sort of model, which is factoring it down to the physical level. You can see the 50-metre um, grid squares in that sense that take account of the, of the kind of detail. Now this I think is, I always get this wrong actually, it's either, it's either Hornchurch or Upchurch in Essex, or not in Essex, in the GLA boundary, but uh, um, 
I don't know whether anybody is familiar with that. It's either Hall Church or Up Church in that sense, but it's actually on the Thames, etc., uh, and quite severe flooding uh, uh, is potentially in this area. And, of course, uh, you might think it's a no-brainer, but the amount of uh, housing that's actually been built on floodplains uh, in the last 20, 30 years, despite planning control, perhaps because of it, I don't know, but uh, despite planning control, is really quite dramatic in that sense. Okay, um, energy costs, and uh, what I was going to show you, and I'm going to actually finish at this point, because uh, I think I've shown you enough of Googler to show you that we can add different things in that context, so there's a number of slides that I'll just shoot through very quickly. Uh, but this is the last piece of the jigsaw, in some sense, to actually ask the question about what might happen under certain scenarios, a what-if type scenarios. Now, here we've got the uh, same model. We have a, an ability to actually change the overall relative transport costs in each of the modes. And in this particular scenario, I've actually increased the, uh, I've increased the, uh, uh, the, the, the travel cost on road by 100%. Uh, in some senses, that might uh, be reached in, 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 in some senses with rising price of gasoline, etc. Of course, rising price of gasoline would lead to changes in the other modes as well. But in some senses, what we're saying here is that if road traffic becomes, road travel rather, becomes 200% higher, 100% uh, higher, I should say, than it is at the moment, relative to all of the modes, all of the things being equal, then what would the impact be, first of all, on the modal split? How many people would shift from, uh, uh, from car to other modes, etc.? Uh, and indeed, what would be the pattern of uh, population redistribution in this particular context? Now, um, if, you, if you actually read that in detail, you'll find that the, the blue and the red are the wrong way around, in a sense, but that doesn't matter. What it's actually showing is that uh, uh, there's an increased concentration. Uh, blue is, 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 is growth in population, and red is loss of population. So by increasing the uh, travel costs on the road system, uh, by 100%, we get concentration uh, in the city, a readjustment so you get concentration, with one or two uh, exceptions in the centre for local reasons in a sense, but generally a pattern of, uh, uh, of shifting from outer to inner, which is to some extent what one might expect in this particular model. If, if, we, if one had quite counterintuitive effects in that sense, then this would show something really quite problematic about the model. The more interesting issue in this context is, and if you, well, you can't really read it, but if you look at some of the shifts in terms of modal split uh, in this particular context, then the modal splits are very dramatic uh, in the sense that uh, we're shifting um, uh, big shifts from uh, big shifts from um, uh, from road. Uh, to tube and bus, etc., much bigger shifts than you actually get in terms of people relocating. So there's a lot of internal adjustment going on, uh, which, is, which is captured by the model in some senses, uh, according to this kind of, uh, this kind of change in, in travel cost. Okay, and that's the same thing represented in here. Now, there's lots of things I could do. We can add uh, various things to this uh, in some senses, but let me just... Uh, Whoops, let me just finish it off. Um, sort of move too quickly through the PowerPoint. Let me just finish it off with a few few points about uh, a few uh, a few points about uh, integrating and blending these different types of models in some sense. Now I've not really had a chance to demonstrate the notion of importing 
uh, the kind of physical representation of the city, the iconic model in that context. But I think that uh, most of us here are familiar with the possibilities of doing that in terms of uh, the software like Google Earth, etc. But essentially, what one is able to do now, I think, in, in this context, is to actually put rather different conceptions, theories, if you like, together, which deal with a whole plurality of viewpoints. So this is blending and integrating different kinds of models. Now, I've only shown... I've only just shown really two sorts of models, but there are many different sorts of models and approaches out there that in some sense uh, can be blended in a more self-conscious way uh, than, in that, than previously in this sense. Of course, in some sense, the real challenge is to actually not so much to integrate the pragmatics, which we've been showing here, or the applications, but to actually integrate the different theoretical understandings in that sense. And it's difficult enough to actually put together these land-use transport models with agent-based and cellular automata. And when we begin to add um, non-digital uh, approaches to cities, of which there are a majority in a sense, in that sense, then the challenge is quite substantial. But I think what the challenge really is in, in, in dealing with the kind of complexity that I've given you a glimpse of from my perspective um, is how we do actually sort of deal with this great plurality of perspectives, all of which give us um, some sense uh, of explanation about what's actually happening in that sense. Um, so in some senses, uh, my conclusion really is that we sort of stand at a threshold, really, I think, um, in our world of where we clearly accept that there are many different approaches to cities in some sense and to, to looking at their complexity. And the real challenge is to actually begin to integrate them and blend them in sensible ways. And that's quite problematic because many different people come to this from many different sort of skill perspectives. So it's actually sort of in some sense as much an intellectual challenge as it is a kind of practical challenge. Okay, now I'm conscious of time, and uh, uh, Felix has given me the sign that we should stop at this point. If, uh, presumably, uh, you, you ask for questions at this point, and I'd be very pleased to answer that. Thank you.